Luke chapter 2, let's begin in verse 1. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Cornelius was governor, governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. Now let's hold our place there and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Hopefully you already have a thumb or a finger or an elbow there. <laughs> Philippians chapter 2, and we'll start reading in verse 1. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for your own, his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are so much looking forward to us studying your word this morning, even more than we are. We're grateful that you have wonderful plans for your word in our lives today. We've come here to worship you. We've come here to love one another. We've come here to celebrate so much, Lord, that you've bestowed upon each one of us. We pray that you would use these verses for your purposes, and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to yield our hearts and our lives to you so that we can obey whatever you want to speak to us about 
you can, that you can uh, deposit this word in our hearts, that we would be good stewards of it, being ready to be doers of the word, not just hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So we thank you that we get to study this word together as a family and go deep as far as we can go in, in this context, Lord. And we, we're grateful that your spirit is faithful to teach us. We ask that he would do so. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. You can turn back to Luke 2, so we'll start there. Now, Christmas, and that's what we're celebrating at this season, uh, Christmas is a time in our culture that our culture sets aside to celebrate the Lord Jesus' birth. Now, as believers, we celebrate his birth every day, celebrate his resurrection every day. We just celebrate Jesus, period. As his, uh, as his believers. And so we are so grateful to be able to do that together as a family. And, and, and our, but because it's a time in our culture, it, it helps us to just stop and, and consider it together corporately. And there's a lot of things that are associated with Christmas in our culture <laughs> that are so far away from what God has in mind for us related to celebrating a Christmas. There's so much commercialism there's so much, so many things that distract, so many things that we can be about and be busy about and be thinking about and, and things that compete against our focus uh, to be completely on the Lord. And, and it, we can miss the true meaning of Christmas. It's very easy. I'm sure that there's uh, many stories, many pr- uh, movies and books and, and things that people have written related to uh, having the me- true meaning of Christmas evade us in our hearts and then having to redirect our hearts back to the true meaning of Christmas. But as we look at God's heart, that really helps us to see the true meaning of Christmas. Because the giving of Jesus is all about God's heart. It's all about him extending to mankind a solution. And this world thinks it's so much about everything else apart from a solution to a problem. And that's because they don't want to recognize the problem that that Jesus solves. And that is, this world is going the wrong direction. This world is fallen. So often in our culture and around the world, we, we think about, why do these things happen in this world that are so hurtful? You know, we think of the catastrophe and the, the, the horrific occurrence that happened recently at the school where the man came in. And, and, and killed children and adults, and we, we think, why? Why, do this, that, why does this have to happen? And we can easily, even as God's people, we can forget so easily that we live in a fallen world. I can't tell you how many times I've encouraged God's people and encouraged my own heart related to the fact that we go through what we go through in part because we live in a fallen world. This world is not functioning how God intended it to function. There was a fall, and mankind is fallen, and thus mankind needs a Savior. And that's that's what Christmas is about, is giving us a gift. God gave us a gift. We exchange presents. So we're supposed to be exchanging presents if we do that, because we're remembering that God extended an amazing gift to us, the best gift that we could ever receive, that is Jesus. You know, when someone gives you a, a perfect gift... What do you usually say? Sometimes you say, you thought of everything. How did you know? I mean, it's perfect. I can't believe all the forethought. I can't believe how much attention to detail you spent in, in, in forming this great 
gift for me and, and taking the time to make it or to buy it at this certain place or whatever. You think of all the trouble they went through to supply this amazing gift for you. And how much more is it for, for God? And how he supplied this amazing gift. And Jesus is so much more than any of us can even comprehend. We're still discovering how amazing that gift is in our lives. And we're going to discover that gift for all eternity. And some people don't appreciate that gift. Have you ever given a gift where someone doesn't appreciate it? They look at it and, and kids are famous for that, aren't they? They're just like, what is this for? And then they just put it aside and they're looking for the next thing, right? And that's a sign to you that they don't really totally appreciate it. But this world does that with the greatest gift. They look at it. They analyze it. They see it from many different angles. They see him for who he really is. Pass it off. Start looking for the next thing. They don't appreciate the gift. And the gift is the greatest gift we could ever receive. And we know that we truly needed that gift because of our greatest need. And he did, as it's been said, he didn't send an amazing philosopher or educator or uh, merely a moral teacher or a great example. He gave a savior, which screams at mankind as if you are screaming from the highest mountaintop. You need a savior. You need a savior. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. And that can be offensive to people. As you're sharing your faith out there, people can be very offended that you would actually say, you're a sinner. What? Me? I'm not a sinner. You're a sinner for telling me that. And we think that a sinner is some notorious, special, super duper kind of sinner. You know, like a, a murderer or someone that robs a bank or someone that's, you know, like Osama bin Laden or Hitler or something. And we don't realize that we all have fallen short of a perfect standard. You know, the word sin means to fall short of a mark. You know, in, in, in Old English, it was used to describe someone that missed the target when they shot an arrow. They'd pull an arrow back and they'd let it go. If they missed the bullseye, they would say, I sinned. And that helped them understand what sin was. But that's kind of been lost in our culture. It's not a whole lot of archers in our culture that are practicing that on a normal, typical basis. But that's, it means missing the mark, missing the standard. And so if you're here today and you don't know Christ, God's expectation of you is for you to recognize that you are a sinner, that you've been less than perfect. That's a definition of, of a sinner, not how we say it is or we, how we say that, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so and so I'm not a sinner. No, the standard is you're measuring yourself up against God himself. And because he's perfect, because he is flawless, because he's never sinned, we have to measure up against that righteousness. And when I share with people, when I share Christ with them and I explain that, it takes some time. You have to take your time in doing that sometimes. Then they immediately say, say something that they think that they did a checkmate on me. They think that they got me. And they say, well, that means you're a sinner. And that means that everybody's a sinner, like as if they got me, you know, on some great debate. And they did the little checkmate thing. And, they, they, and I'm going to say uncle. And I'm like, I agree with them. You're right. We all are sin sinners. You know, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so it means that we've fallen short. But that's the beautiful thing about God sending a Savior is that he knew what we needed and he didn't leave us in that condition. Our condition was we can't save ourselves. We could never do enough good to outdo our bad deeds ever. And we have to give an account for all of those things. But God sent Jesus to pay the price on the cross 
so that we could trust in him and then we can trust in him because he's already paid that price. God the Father poured out his wrath upon him that we deserved so that we can be pardoned, so to speak, and receive salvation as a gift. So that little baby Jesus in that manger, you know, a lot of times we have nativity scenes and that little baby represents something that speaks to man's need. And it's good for us believers to remember that and it's good for unbelievers to know that. That that little baby in that manger screams at, to, if the baby could scream, you know, or someone that's like someone screaming to us, you need a savior, you need a savior, you are lost, you are lost, you are lost. There is no hope apart from that. And that way we can appreciate that savior, that gift. And what I want to talk about this morning in the context of looking at God giving that gift and fulfilling the need that we had and getting a savior is how it happened. He did it in humility, complete humility. And as we look at that, it affects how we're supposed to live our lives today because a humble savior produces, is supposed to produce humble disciples. And humble disciples are supposed to live a certain way. God has expectations related to our lives and how we should live in humility and, and, and be available to serve others. And so we're going to look into that because we're really celebrating Christmas, like I said, every single day of the year. So how I live my life in a practical way uh, demonstrates what I believe about Christmas every single day, apart from September 25th. So now let's look at Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. He says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, Caesar did this, and this is, we went in, we've gone into this in the past, but this decree had to be have perfect timing. And I want to call your attention to the first few words of verse 1 where it says, and it came to pass. You know, in Galatians it says, in the fullness of time God sent forth his son. There was an exact timing. Daniel prophesied the exact day by the Holy Spirit that Jesus would present himself on Palm Sunday as the Messiah to the Jewish people. To the exact day. Which means that all of the details related to his life had to happen at an exact moment in time. And this Caesar gave this decree. Now we're told in Proverbs that God holds the heart of the king in his hand. So God is sovereign. God's in control. So he moved on this Caesar the Caesar Augustus, that everyone should be registered. And so this had to happen exactly at the perfect time because if it had happened too soon, uh, then there, they wouldn't have ended up in Bethlehem. If it happened too late, Jesus would have already been born and, and they lived in Nazareth. They lived a long ways away from Bethlehem. Bethlehem was in uh, the southern part of Israel, close to Jerusalem. The Galilee, where Nazareth is, is in the north there. And so God had to get them down there somehow. And, and, and it wasn't difficult for him, we know. It's, everything's easy for him to do. But that, this is how we accomplish that. And he said in verse 2, This census first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. So basically, they left there. And you imagine women... You know what this is like. We don't, as men, have no idea what it's like to be pregnant. But you imagine being nine months pregnant and having to travel hundreds of miles, uh, most likely on a donkey, um, and, and having that discomfort. <laughs> oh, man, I can't even imagine. But that's what, that's what happened. And so it says that Joseph also went up, from, went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, that's important. 
This is the, the, the God promised all the way through in the Old Testament that there would be a certain lineage. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob through that lineage there and through David. He gave very specific prophecies so that when the Messiah came, uh, we would be able to look at the prophetic portrait that's been painted in the Old Testament and not miss God's promised Messiah. And one of those promises, one of those prophecies was that, was that he'd be a descendant of David. And, and, and many times in the, his public ministry, he was referred to as the son of David. You may remember that. So it was very important. And so Joseph uh, and Mary were from that lineage. And so it, all, everybody had to go back to where they originated from. And so uh, both of them went back to Bethlehem. And so it says in verse 5, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And I believe that the days were completed, it goes beyond just her pregnancy was in full term. I believe it also ties into the rest of this whole chronology and the perfect timing of the Lord of when this had to happen. There was a very specific day that God had picked out. Uh, we don't know the exact day. It's, it's likely not December 25th, but we celebrate the birth on that time or, or during that day. And so there was a completion for her and she was ready to, to, to deliver the Lord Jesus. Verse 7. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Now that was very common where they would wrap them in these cloths really tight, just very, very tight with their arms in. So often they would be concerned about them scratching their face, you know, with their nails or they just, it was just for protection. So they would wrap them really, really tightly there. And so that was, that was uh, very common in that time and laid them in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And so a manger was a feeding trough. It doesn't say specifically that they were in a stable, uh, although it's likely that this cave that they were in was a stable, but it doesn't explicitly say that, but there was a trough there. So likely somebody had had animals there. And so they laid them in this manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now God is sovereign. We already seen in this passage where he's sovereign over the situation and moves on an ungodly ruler to have a certain, you know, census occur at a very certain time. Do you think that he could have had Jesus be born in a palace? Absolutely. Do you think that he could have had the best care and he, all those things could have been the case, but God very purposely ha had his son be born in a context of poverty and humility. And it, it really makes sense if you think about it, because there are so many in this world, most of the people in this world are not wealthy, not even well off, not even, even middle income. They're poor. And so if, if God had sent his son to be born in a palace, how easy would it been, would have been for them to identify with the Lord Jesus? It would have been difficult because they, I can't relate to that guy. Uh, you know, he's, he's wealthy and, and all of that. But he, he comes in humility. There's so many reasons why he came in humility. But it just shows you that man didn't make this up. Because if man would have made this up, he would have had it be appropriately with, like everybody else, other, any other king that's born in wealth and, and uh, all this affluence and everything. But he comes in humility and they lay him in this little feeding trough. Verse 8. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Now the angels are going to appear to, the, to these shepherds 
Again, who is he appearing to? He's having his angels appear to shepherds. That speaks again of humility because shepherds were considered one of the lowest people in that culture. They weren't well respected. In fact, in many parts of the world, they're still not respected at all. But God announces this to humble people. He comes in a humble context related to where he was physically born. And, he, and then the announcement, the birth announcement. I mean, many kings would have heralders that go out and announce that their, that their uh, sons or daughters were born. And, and they, would, they would have all this, you know, f- uh, fancy, you know, frills and things and uh, all this pomp and so forth. And here God announces this to humble shepherds there. Beautiful picture of Humility, And they're not just any shepherds, they're country shepherds. Maybe that helps. I don't know if that's even more humility. I don't think there's too many city shepherds, but uh, I don't know. <laughs> Living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. And be, verse 9, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. It's interesting that first you have an angel of the Lord that stands before them here. And just the glory from that illuminates the whole area where they're at. You could miss that if you look through here, but it says, the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of the Lord, not the glory of the angels, the glory of the Lord that God bestowed upon the angels because he's obviously their source and he created them. And they're afraid. Why would they be afraid? We think, well, that would be cool. Who would be afraid? We would be afraid if we were there and we had saw this angel of the Lord appear and that glory surround us in that, those dark fields uh, outside of Bethlehem. I've been to those fields. They're very dark and secluded at night. And, and this has, you know, the illumination and the glory of the Lord just being around them. I mean, you could just imagine what they would be going through at that moment. They were afraid. But then the angel said to them, don't be afraid, verse 10. For behold, and behold means carefully consider, For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. So no need to be afraid. Consider this. I bring you good news. Good news that's all about joy and all about goodwill from God extended to mankind. Now, again, in this culture, when we think of how difficult things are in this wicked world that we live in, and, and how, why God allows all these things to happen. Here we see God's heart extended here. His will is to extend good will towards mankind, to extend to them great joy, and not just to some people. Notice he says all people. Not just the elect, all people. All means all. <laughs> and he wants everyone to know the Savior. This gift has been extended to every single person, not just people that will receive him. Every single person has been given this great gift. And so the angel says, don't be afraid. This is good news. This is all good. The fact that we're appearing, the fact that you're seeing the glory of the Lord around you, it's a sign of good things, not bad things. And so he wants to, uh, the angel wants to, to be more specific with them. And so they, the angel says in verse 11, for there is born to you, this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There is born to you, not just anybody, everybody, and and to you specifically, you are the recipient of this gift. You're the one that God has in mind. He sees every person. He sees every single need. God doesn't see people in groups. He sees people specifically. He sees people individually. 
And he sees people with great need and he says, this is a gift that I want to extend to you. In this day, this, uh, the, in the city of David, I want you to turn with me, hold your place here, and turn with me to Micah chapter 5. I want to show you a prophecy related to this city of David. It's one of the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament. By the way, it's, they're the minor prophets, not because they say things that are less important, but because they're smaller in their book size. Um, so they're the major prophets and the minor prophets, all important, but the minor prophets are smaller books. Micah chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are, are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. What's interesting about this prophecy is that it was given around 700 years before the birth of Christ. And it has a near meaning and a far meaning, and meaning, but the far meaning is this is a messianic passage, and, and God is being very specific. I mean, they knew that the, the Messiah was going to be born in, in Bethlehem. We're told that in the New Testament. But one, one of the things I want you to see is that it wasn't just any Bethlehem. Not many people know that there was another Bethlehem. There was a Bethlehem in the north. There was a Bethlehem in the Galilee area, right next to Nazareth. And, and God knew that there was a very specific Bethlehem. So not only did he prophesy where the Messiah would be born, something that Jesus had no control over if he was just a mere man, but he got the right Bethlehem. And it would make sense that in the natural that God would have him be born in Bethlehem uh, that up in the Galilee area, but he didn't. He had him come all the way down to, to uh, Bethlehem Ephrathah. There's a very specific Bethlehem, the Bethlehem of Judea there. And one of the things I want to highlight there in verse 2 is that he says, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, basically I'm going to have the Messiah come forth from you. This is another sign of humility. He didn't choose the biggest city to be born in. He chose a very small town. It's very small today. It really has not grown very much. It's about 20,000 people population today. It's not very big. It's a very, and it was even smaller back then. And so here God says, I'm, I'm going to be born in humility, not, not only uh, you know, a humble context related to a, to a feeding trough and, and all these other things, but also the city is going to actually be a city of humility. And, and we see that God does not want to be known for being uh, a God that comes and always has the best things for himself in this world. He came as a suffering servant. He came, it says, to, uh, being poor that we may become rich and all the spiritual uh, uh, wealth that comes from his sacrifice. But look, he says in the middle of verse 2 there, Micah 5, he says, the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. He has no beginning. This child that, that's going to be born, and we're told in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that a child is, is going to be born. And he calls that child mighty God. Now, in the Jewish mind, that would be impossible unless 
the, the, the one that was going to be born that was going to be called the mighty God was all, also Jehovah at the same time, Jehovah God. And that's what was the case. And so great humility. Now move back to Luke chapter 2. And in verse 12, again, more... Uh, Actually, let's go to verse 13. And he said, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. So God didn't have to have that happen. He didn't have to have a whole heavenly host. He could have had just one angel. I mean, wasn't there enough of God's glory around there to be uh, sufficient to show that he's putting a stamp of validation on this birth and that the shepherds can know, these humble men can know that the Messiah is coming. He could have just had one angel and the glory of the Lord. But then he, it says suddenly, notice that word suddenly in verse 13, suddenly it surprised them, took them off guard. It was immediate, just a whole huge heavenly host of angels breaking out in song and worshiping God. Glory to God in the highest because of what? Because of his peace and his goodwill being extended toward men. That he would have such a heart, such a giving heart towards us that he would give this perfect gift. It just provoked worship. And and, and Christmas is all about worship. It's all about celebrating that amazing gift because how do we respond to God's goodness? We're told in 1 John that we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. So the proper response to God giving this amazing, perfect gift to us, the ultimate gift, is worship. And so we break forth in song and we worship him, but worship's supposed to represent my whole life. My whole life's supposed to represent that in in. in living a life that's pleasing to him. And, but there, like I said, there's this humble Savior supposed to produce humble disciples. And our willingness to let him produce that humility in us and to use that humility as a place, as a launching point, to, to, to serve and to love others and to give our lives away, that's the best form of worship. That's the best way to celebrate Christmas every day of the year, is to be a humble disciple, being an extension of him in this World And it's, it's a beautiful picture because, again, God wants people to know in this world that are lost that he has thoughts of peace towards them. He wants them to, to be in peace. But they can't have peace unless they come to God his way, unless they accept the grace of God first in their lives and the love of God and his sacrifice coming to God his way. Then they'll receive peace. So they have to be properly appropriating this wonderful gift. They have to be good stewards of that gift and accept that gift. And he wants to use us to be able to communicate that amazing gift. Then he says in verse 15, So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass which the Lord has made known to us. So these shepherds, they, they want to see this. That's in part why the angel let them know. God wanted other people to be there to witness it. And I love who he revealed all this to, again, these humble shepherds. And he wants this to be enjoyed. He wants this gift to be enjoyed. What good is a gift if people can't enjoy it? 
And the first step to people enjoying it in this world was having these people come and be able to see this great gift and be a witness to it so that they can be heralders, easy for me to say, heralders in in their own way to, to lost people, which they're going to do. So they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. So they, it says widely known. They told, they shared. And that's, that's our role as believers. Our role as disciples is to let people know about this gift. People may know about Jesus in a manger, but they may not make the connection that it's a gift from God to us that speaks of a need that they have their need to be forgiven and to be saved from the penalty of their sins. And so God wants us to do the same, to go out and we've met Christ. Just like those shepherds have met Christ, we've met Christ, those of us that know him. And God's plan for us is for us to go and spread the good news to be able to say, I've encountered this Jesus. I've not just encountered him as a baby, though. I've encountered him as a, as a risen Savior. And he's, this risen Savior has changed my life. And I want to tell you about him. I want to tell you this good news. I want to tell you God's heart for you. That God extended this gift for you so that you can be forgiven of your sins. Do we forget sometimes that people need to know that there's a Savior that wants to forgive them of their sins? I think we do. I know I do. I forget at times. And so God's always working in our lives to get us to be more uh, willing to share and open our mouths And not just live our lives as an example, which is great and it needs to happen, but also to open our mouths. There comes a point in time we need to open our mouths and share the good news with somebody in love, prompted by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful thing that we get to be a part of. And look at the response in verse 18. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Now this is new to people. They've never heard of this before. So, you know, people aren't going to be marveling probably at a higher percentage than they would be with us communicating it because they've heard the story before. But we, all, we can't assume that they're never going to marvel. And they're never going to have a good response to what we say. They will. Jesus said the harvest field is ripe. He didn't say that the harvest field is somehow uh, something wrong with it and, and it's not ready to be harvested. He said the problem is a lack of workers to go into the harvest field. His solution was prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, that, they, that he would send workers into the harvest field. And you know what happens when you start praying for workers to go into the harvest field, don't you? You start being that worker. You start seeing the need. You start being aware of people that are lost around you, and you want to help them with the gospel. But they will have a positive response sometimes. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What do these things mean? She knows what happened between her and the Lord. She knows that she's never known Joseph at this point. She knows that <laughs> that's a, it's a miracle of God. She's been visited by an angel. She's, she knows. But she probably still doesn't have the full understanding of what's going on. So she tucked that away in her heart. And she pondered these things. And as her life progressed, the revelation of what she was in the middle of would grow and increase. And then she would learn exactly uh, what God uh, was using her in. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. They rejoiced. Again, the the proper response to Christmas is worship. 
and his praise and his thankfulness and having that on our heart, uh, on the tip of our heart, so to speak, and on the tip of our tongue and, and be able to explain those things and, and worship the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of worship. If you can't see worship in this passage, uh, we need prayer <laughs> because it's all through here. Our whole lives are supposed to be a response to God's great gift. But he doesn't stop there. Let's turn over to Philippians 2. And let's see another perspective of this great gift that God has given and an increased perspective on the humility that it required for God to come in human flesh. Philippians chapter 2. He says in verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now that's the, that's the, the, the behavior or the, the expectations that God has for his humble disciples that have been affected by a humble savior. But then he gets in verse five through eight, and we'll go back to one through four in a moment, but five through eight is actually when he gave the gift. It's the incarnation of Christ. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I want to call your attention to a word in verse 6, and it's the word form. It's the word morphe in the Greek. It's the root word, the, the word that we use for metamorphosis. Uh, meta is a preposition connected to morphe, so it's a, like a hyper change, a hyper change that happens there. So he, he, is in the, he was being in the form of God, being in the, the very image of God. Some translations translate it image of God. So he was God and is God, but did not, and he says it, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, it was appropriate to be considered to be equal with God the Father because it was true. As we get into Hebrews in the future, we're going to see in chapter 1 such an incredible vivid picture of the deity of Christ where the Father speaks to the Son and calls him God. That, that, that will make any Jehovah's Witness blush. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, it's clear that he is divine there. And that's so he's, he's, he wants to make sure that this incarnation, he, for us to know that the incarnation was God himself coming in the form of man. And that's what he gets to in verse 7. He says, but made himself, that means Jesus himself, made himself of no reputation. That's humility, isn't it? No reputation, taking the form, there's that same word again, morphe, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. That's Christmas, isn't it? Isn't Christmas, verse 7? <laughs> taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. There's Christmas right in Philippians. You didn't know it was there, did you? <laughs> but that is what happened. And for us to understand what the incarnation is, notice he doesn't say he stopped being one form and became another form. That's false teaching. That means that Jesus stopped being divine. That never happened. What Jesus did is he came from heaven to earth in the form of Jesus. I mean, in, in, 
in the, the, the birth of Christ. And he took on, this is very important, watch this, he took on an additional nature. So he never stopped being God, but he added an additional human, not a sinful human nature, but an additional uh, nature that was perfectly human. So he had dual natures, and that continues to this day. He took on an additional human nature, and that continues. So, So he's all God and all man, all at the same time. And another thing that we'll see when we get into Hebrews is that he's our high priest who can have compassion for us because he has gone through the things that we have gone through, infinitely worse than we, what we've gone through in his public ministry. Now, obviously, God could know all those things because he's God anyway, but he experienced those things firsthand. And we can see that and know that, and that can bring us tremendous comfort. So he was already God, and then he took on this other nature, and he says what? Of a bondservant. We can just religi- make that religiously palatable for us. Bondservant, okay, that's great. That means a slave. He came in humility as a slave in the form of someone that was totally surrendered to somebody else, and that was the Father. Jesus said at one point, I always do those things that please the Father. I wish I could say that. I know you wish you could say it too. We wish we could say, I always do those things that please the Father. Someday we're going to get our heavenly bodies, our new bodies, and we'll be able to say that uh, before him by his grace. But he came as a servant, and he says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There's our word. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. It's very important for us to see that Jesus came in complete humility. He didn't come as a, as, a, as a king as we would expect him to come. He came in humility as a servant. And we can't think that God is somehow wants us to function anything other than the same way that he functioned. We're told in scripture that he laid out a pattern for us that we should walk in that pattern. And so we're called to be bond servants. Paul started many of his letters, a bondservant for Christ, someone that is a willing, volitional slave for life. It's a permanent situation where I say, I want to serve you for the rest of my life, and I want to do so willingly, and I want to do so permanently. And and that's what God has called each one of us to. And what that looks like is verses 1 through 4 in Philippians 2. So he kind of switched it around. You know, you'd think that he'd put verses 5 through 8, the content at the beginning, and then put, but he doesn't do it. But So these, these things in verses 1 through 4, he knows that those things are going to produce wonderful things through our lives. It's basically Jesus living his life in this world through us. That's what he wants. Sometimes we look at a, a painter that's painting a beautiful work of art, and we just think, if I could just paint like that, that artist... If I could just do it, what I, what I paint, it looks, it looks like, uh, you know, uh, uh, kindergarten. <laughs> That's a good word. You know, just the trying to make those things look good just doesn't work. And sometimes you could think, if I just could get inside that artist's body, and then, or, or if that artist could just get inside of my body, and he could just paint through me, I could make these beautiful works of art. And that's what God has set up in us. Related to the Holy Spirit inside of us. He comes inside of us and then now he's the master artist that paints beautiful portraits through loving and serving others. And, and he comes inside and makes those beautiful things through our lives. 
but it requires that I yield my life to him in humility, recognizing that he can do with my life as he pleases. But look at all these things that happen through humility in verses 2 through 4. First, he speaks of, in verse 2, he speaks of unity, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. That speaks of unity. In, In harmful environments, spiritual environments, they try to force unity by man-made ways and manipulation. That's called conformity. God doesn't produce conformity. God produces spirit-led unity in his people. And that happens by us submitting to him and being about the things that he considers important. And then we're, we're uh, recognizing that we're part of a larger whole. I've said this many times. God emphasizes us as a larger whole who happen to be individual members in the New Testament, not the other way around. That's our American culture, where we say we're individual members who happen to be part of a larger whole. You won't get that from the New Testament. The New Testament says first that we're a larger whole who have individual gifts and we're supposed to be functioning in unity. But what does that require? It starts with an H. Humility. That's right. You're good. You're getting there. Only, you know, 35 and 40 minutes into it. You're, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but it requires humility. It requires us considering others better than ourselves. It doesn't say act like other people are better than you. That any Pharisee, and we're all Pharisees in our own heart in many ways, any Pharisee can act like someone else is better, but you don't really believe it and you really don't uh, you know, truly submit to the Lord in that. You're just going through the motions outwardly. God doesn't say, I don't want, he says, I don't want that. I want you to function and love one another in unity by considering others better. And he says in verse 3, nothing should be done with selfish ambition. When you see yourself as part of a larger whole primarily and you're submitted to what God has for you and you're in unity with other believers, you're not putting yourself first. But that's all what our culture is about. And that creeps into many churches where it's all about me and it's all about what I want. And if I don't get what I want, I'm going to take my ball and go home, you know, and, and, and God moves people on. I'm not saying that, but there, there can't be a selfishness and it, an all about me attitude An all about me attitude makes a very miserable place. We, we know that in our own personal families, when children are all about themselves, it makes a very, very hard environment. Even when parents are like that, it makes a hard environment. But when your kids are like that, it grieves you. And God is grieved when we don't get along and when we don't serve one another and we're putting our own needs above everybody else's. And he says it requires, notice the middle of verse 3, lowliness of mind. That's what Jesus had. You know, we can't fully appreciate what Jesus went through in coming to this world to say nothing of dying on the cross because we have no clue about the place from which he came in its totality. But in John chapter 17, when he prayed that great great high priestly prayer, he says, the glory that I had with you, Father, before the world began. He had an incredible glory uh, there and enjoyed heaven. And he came here. Just even if he came here in, in a palace and with great circumstances, the level of condescension is mind-boggling. But to come it, the way he came as we've looked at, And then through obedience, going to the cross to pay the full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins, it's just, it it makes no excuse for us related to how we're going to live our lives. 
We need to live our lives in humility, loving and serving one another. But he says, I don't want you to ignore your own interests in verse 4. Those things need to be taken care of. That's stewardship. But he says, look out for the interests of others. That's a product of humble discipleship, is to care for others. You know, there are people that, and I've said this recently, but in another context, but think about the people that you haven't seen around here for a while. Where are they? I mean, some of them may have moved on to other churches, and that's great. But there are some people that are just hurting. And God's call all of us as a family to reach out and check in with them because they may not feel comfortable in saying that they have a need. They should communicate that. But if they don't, you know, they, we, we should be reaching out. If we haven't seen anybody for a while, we need to be calling them and reaching out to them. How are you doing? Just checking in. You know, we love you. We care about you. How can we pray for you? Very important. That's what, that's what he's talking about in part there. Not only looking out for our interests, but also for the interests of others to reach out. How are you doing? How can I pray for you? And then being sensitive to people's needs. We're very needy. We like to pretend sometimes we don't have any needs. Oh, I know that's not you. That's another church, you know, um, and that's not me. It's another pastor. But we could pretend like we don't have any needs. And God says, I want you to be open with your needs, and I want you to be transparent so that others in the body of Christ can come to your assistance. But we, oh, I don't want to bother them, or I don't want to let that be known or make a big deal. God says, make a big deal about it. Let us know. Let the people know. And, and that's what he wants. And if we're doing that, then we're flowing in humility. We're flowing in the, uh, the way that God calls us to function. And we'll be good stewards of what he's entrusted us with. And it's all because of what Jesus did. And that great gift that he is, all done in humility. Let's pray together. Lord, make us into the people you want us to be. Jesus, we can't believe that you came the way you came. We would never would have dreamed that up in a million years. We're so grateful for your humility, Lord. What a great example you are. I pray that you would help us to, as your disciples to be humble and to be looking out for others' needs. Help us, Lord, to have an environment of, uh, of care and love and concern, Lord. We know that you've called this to be like a hospital, and we want it to be paramedics for you, so to speak, in a spiritual way. I pray, Lord, that people could never fall through the cracks in this fellowship or any fellowship in this city and in this world. We pray that your people would be taken care of and we'd be sensitive to their needs. We thank you for the example that you are and we want to be more like you. We pray that you would do that in us by your spirit and by your power and by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.